This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at Revelations chapter, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 tonight. We'll uh, look at a couple of other passages as well. Uh, the first verse we'll read together is actually in chapter 1. But uh, have you ever read a book that there was a character in the book, and as you read through, uh, you first meet the character, and you find out a few of the details, and as the story goes on, you, you find out more and more, and here's an important bit of information that you'll find out why it's important later on, and here's a little bit more about the character in a later chapter, and you begin to, to compile this picture of who this person is. And over time, as you read through the book, you, you discover more and more of who this character is until finally, in the end of the book, it all comes together and you realize, this is why all of these things are true about this person. This is what's significant about all these details that have been throughout this book. But it all comes together at the very end and you realize, this is who this person really is, and perhaps it's a surprising revelation but this is why all of those details were shared earlier on. This is why they're significant. Now I finally see. It's like it's all been cleared up. The veil's pulled away, and there they are, and now I, now I understand. Well, as we look at the book of Revelation, that's how, I, that's how I look at this book. Because as we look at Scripture, and I, um, back on December 27th during the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour, we looked together um, at Revelation chapter 1, and we saw, we looked at that chapter as, as John sees Christ revealed there. And I, I talked about this concept then, but as we look at Scripture, we see little bits about who Christ is, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, these foreshadowings. And as we go through the Old Testament, there's more and more, and then we meet Christ in the in the Gospels, and we find out more and more about him, and then even more in the epistles as the depth of who Christ is, is, is revealed there. And then finally we come to the book of Revelation, and here the veil is pulled away. And so I, I want to take the time to study through this book, and I'm going to preach messages as I study through looking at the unveiled Christ in the book of Revelation. Seeing Christ as he is revealed to us there. Finally, the veil is pulled away, and we see more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture who Christ really is. After all, what is the title of this book? Well, you, you might look at the first few words that appear before the words of Scripture there, but I want you to look at the first verse of Revelation chapter 1 and look at what the title that Scripture gives to this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed. So we're going to see how all of the wonderful things that we learn about Christ through Scripture come together in this amazing book. And... Here we see Christ as much as we possibly can in all his glory, his power, and his majesty. 
Uh, he is the glorious God. We saw that back in December. Uh, as if, and I'd encourage you to take a look at that first chapter of Revelation. If you weren't able to be a part of that lesson, or maybe you were and, and you need a, a refresher, look at Revelation chapter 1 and, and look at the vision John has as Jesus Christ is revealed to him in all of his glory. And consider how Jesus Christ is truly the glorious God. The glory of God as it's shown through Christ there. Well, tonight, we are going to look at Christ once again, but we're going to see him specifically in chapters 2 and 3 as the loving bridegroom. You know, perhaps in many cases this is going by the wayside, but love letters are a staple of romantic relationships. Long have been uh, something that is considered for many um, necessary if you're going to have a successful romantic relationship. And many couples have boxes of love letters that they can go back to and they can read through and, and uh, you know, they can be overcome by the sweetness or they can say, really? Did I write that? <laughs> but they mean something, right? These, these letters, they're intended to, to share the depth of your love for that person. And they're significant. Well, tonight we're going to look at some love letters from Christ. But first, before we get to looking at that, I, I've called Christ the loving bridegroom. And that begs a question. If he's the bridegroom, who's the bride? It's important for us to understand if we're going to look at this, if we're going to understand what we can learn about Christ as the bridegroom here. Well, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to jump around a little bit here, okay, and then we'll settle in in chapters 2 and 3. But this joyous proclamation is made. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, the Lamb, of course, being Christ. And his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So who is this bride? Well, the bride is those who have trusted in Christ. They wear the righteousness of saints, it says there. Well, what is that? That's the people who've done really good at being righteous on earth, right? No, it's as Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So these are those who have placed their faith in Christ. These are those who have been washed by his blood. They've been redeemed. They wear that, the white linen garment of Christ's righteousness. That's the picture that we're given there. So that's who this bride is. And there's other places in Scripture we could go. Um, Ephesians 5 talks about um, the, the picture of the husband and wife, and the picture that is of Christ and his relationship with the church, his love for the church, the fact that he gave himself for it. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, we learned some things about this book, some of the background information. We learned who wrote it. It was, it was John. We learned on whose behalf he wrote it, as Christ came to him and commissioned him to write this book. But one thing we didn't really look at 
as we consider that, is who the book is written to. Take a look with me at Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. Here, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's kind of laid the groundwork in the first 10 verses. And then in verse 11, he's, he's there in the Isle of Patmos, and suddenly he hears this voice like thunder. And here's what the voice says. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. This is amazing to me. And I think this is important for us to get. All right. I know this kind of feels like I've, I've touched on several different things and they're kind of scattered I think we're going to bring them all together here. But when we think of the book of Revelation, I, I think a lot of times we can think of it in very different terms from what the original readers would have. We think of it this way. We imagine it being along these lines. All right, here it is. It's the newest, best-selling hardback. John, you might know him from his gospel. Well, he's written a brand new book. It's a tell-all about the end of the world. And here it is. And we think of it that way, as being something that's, um, that's remarkable, that people are just drawn to because it's this exciting book about the end times, and we want to know about the end times. And we know books like this that come out today. And sometimes we can kind of put Revelation into that category. We think of it as being this production. But in reality, what is it? Well, at its heart, it's a personal letter from Jesus Christ to seven real churches. And I can say, I believe that we can say without being irreverent, that this is a letter from a bridegroom to his bride. This whole book. And I think if we get that, it helps us with our perspective. And we understand that all 22 chapters are written out of that love, out of that relationship there is between Christ and his bride. Jesus Christ, over the course of this book, has some important things to tell his church. He wants to encourage her to persevere and not to lose hope. That's one of the big lessons we get from this book. Don't lose hope because... He's still in control. He's going to make all things right in the end. The final chapter has been written already. And we're in the middle of it, but he knows what's going to happen, and he tells us, look, I'm going to win the victory. And th these words of encouragement that way. But it's also, I believe, written out of a desire. Christ wants his church to look to him, to see him for who he is, and to make sure that the relationship, the fellowship between him and them is what it ought to be. To say, these are, this is a glimpse of what's coming. Are you, are you living in light of that? Are you living in light of who I am? Tonight we're going to look at what is probably the most personal part of this book. We consider this all to be a letter from Christ to these seven churches. And I want to be clear, 
I'm not saying it doesn't apply to us. It absolutely does. This is written to the church for all time, but there's a personal nature to the way that it's written. But in chapters 2 and 3, it gets especially personal as Jesus Christ addresses each of these seven churches individually. Here he is writing to his bride, and he's saying, here's the specific message that I want for this church. Here's the specific message I want to share with this church. Now, these aren't exactly stereotypical love letters, but each is personal. Each one is meaningful. Each one is full of love. Now, we could, and, and many people have, take the time to have a series of message over these seven churches. All right, There's lots of wonderful material here, and I'm, I hope that the time we spend together here tonight will encourage you to go back in and do some more study and read through and, and see all that's here. Um, many of you were, or at least some of you, were likely part of Pastor Cole's Bible Institute class last, uh, last year that went over these seven churches of Revelation. But tonight, specifically, I want to focus on a few lessons that we can learn about the love of the bridegroom as he pens these letters to his bride. So first of all, I want to consider the tenderness of his love. Look with me, please, uh, at Revelation chapter 2. I want to look at what he has to say to the church at Smyrna. Beginning in verse 8, the Bible says, And the angel, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. There is a very straightforward honesty in these verses. Christ is very clear. He's not sugarcoating what's going on in the church at Smyrna. He's not glossing over the difficulty of what they're facing. He's very clear about it. He, he says, I get it, I understand, I know what's going on. I know the tribulation, I know the poverty, I know that there are those there that are, that are speaking false things. They say they're Jews, they're not. They're actually working for Satan. They're, they're, they're moving forward the work of Satan. Some of you are going to go into prison. Some of you, by the way he words it, presumably are going to die for your faith. This is a church that is suffering this is a church that is facing tribulation, that is facing persecution. Things are difficult. Things are hard to bear. But as he writes to this church, there is tenderness here. He understands their trouble. His heart is touched by the challenges that this church is facing. And he wants to encourage them. And that's one of the aspects of true love. True love cares. True love is tender. True love is, is uh, willing to feel for others. It's willing to enter into their troubles. Uh, you think of a, a child 
who gets hurt, all right? And it might be serious, it might be fairly minor. But when you see that it is something that is genuinely hurting that child, it's something that is, that is really actually painful. They're not just making a, making a fuss because they want some attention. This is something that is hurt. If you love that child, it's only natural for there to be tenderness there, perhaps some tears to be shed on their behalf. And as you try to help them, as you try to comfort them, as you put a Band-Aid on it, as you give them a hug, there's a, there's a care, there's a tenderness, there's a compassion. And that's one of the aspects of true love, and that is one of the aspects of Christ's love for his church. I love James 5.11. It, it talks about the, uh, it says the patience of Job, all that Job endured. It brings, he, that passage, he brings out this illustration of Job, all that Job went through. And it says, you've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, the, the end that the Lord was accomplishing there, what the Lord was bringing about, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You know, we look at Job and there's all the dialogue that goes on between him and his friends. And then, Christ, the Lord comes, God comes, and speaks to Job. And basically, the Lord's message to Job is, I don't owe you an explanation. I don't owe you anything in this situation. Job has tried to suggest that he understands what's going on. He gets it. God says, you don't get it. I am the God of all the earth. I'm in charge here. I don't owe you an explanation. I don't owe you any help. I don't owe you anything. That's basically the Lord's message. And we say that's a, that's a legitimate message. It's true. Job didn't need an explanation of why he was suffering. Job didn't deserve any of what he had in the first place. Job didn't need God to give him any of it back to him. God could have said, look, I created it all. I own it all. I've chosen to do this. End of story. And Job is going to suffer for the rest of his life. But we see the end of the Lord and what the Lord brings about in that situation. And what does the Lord do? He's so gracious. He's so kind. He gives back to Job so much more. He blesses Job in a way that just blows our minds. And he makes things right. Why? Because the Lord is pitiful. He's full of pity and tender mercy. Compassion, tenderness. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, but I don't want us to miss that because sometimes we can think about the, the love of God, I think, in such transcendent terms that we miss the fact that he is really compassionate to us. And he's compassionate to these churches here as he speaks to them. That's one of the aspects of his love. But we also see the commitment of his love. Christ doesn't just say, I love you, and I hope everything goes great for you. I hope you can figure this out. I hope that things go well in your church. And just know that I love you. No, there's more to it than that. 
He's committed to them. He's invested in them. He gives to them. Listen to all that he says he's giving to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He speaks to the church at Philadelphia. Listen to all the things that he says he's giving to this church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Did you catch all that he said he's giving to this church? All the things that he's doing on their behalf? The blessings that he's promising to them? He's invested in what they're doing. But of course we understand that it goes so much further than that. Christ is committed in his love and the greatest evidence of that is we find throughout Scripture, but in chapter 1 we saw it. As John addressed himself to the churches, he says, John to the seven churches, uh, beginning in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Is there a commitment in Christ's love? Absolutely. Is there a sacrifice in Christ's love? Is there giving in Christ's love? He washed us with his blood. That's the level of commitment in Christ's love for us. That's the level of commitment we see as he writes to these churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He says, I am committed to you. It's not just, here's the church doing their thing and he's watching to see what happens. He says, I am invested in this. I'm committed to you. I have given myself to you. I am yours. That's amazing. But that's one of the aspects of true love is it is committed it gives, it sacrifices of itself. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a wedding ring tonight, all right? You imagine, perhaps, a, a young couple, they've spent wonderful time together, They're, they've enjoyed each other's company so much, they've prayed about it, uh, they've sought counsel, and they say, we ought to get married. It's, it's the Lord's will, it's right, this is the one. And so... They, they, they want, or they, the, the guy, he says, I, I love her so much, I want to I do this. And so he goes and he, he uh, prepares everything and he's got this wonderful engagement plan. And finally he, he kneels down and he asks the question, will you marry me? And she says, I love you so much, I love you with all my heart. This is so wonderful, this relationship has been such a blessing. It's great and I want to just keep on loving you, but I don't want to commit. 
I don't want to commit anything to this relationship. And I know if I take that ring, that's making a commitment. I want to keep loving you. I, don't, I just don't want to commit anything to that. I, I don't want to make any promises. I don't want to make an investment. And the guy says, okay, no problem. No worries. <laughs> I understand you still love me. No, that's not love. Love commits. Love gives itself. Love is willing to sacrifice, and it does sacrifice. And that's Christ's love for his bride. But I want to move on, because overwhelmingly in these letters, in, in these, uh, these messages to these churches that Christ shares, there's an aspect of love that we don't tend to think of very quickly when we think of love. But it's significant, and there's a lot of time spent on it. And that is the jealousy of his love. The overwhelming tone of most of these letters. We, we read the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia. And those ones are a little bit different from some of the others because it's all commendation. It's all encouragement. That's not the story with all seven. The overwhelming tone of most of these letters is one of jealousy. And we, we tend to hear that and we say jealousy well, that's not good. That, that's, that's petty. That's not a spiritual thing. Well, let me explain. I think part of the issue here is our, our confusion of terms. There's a difference between envy and jealousy. All right? Envy, Pastor Ned has a new truck. If I were a truck guy, there could be the potential for envy. All right? Why? Who does it belong to? It belongs to Pastor Ned, at least presumably. I, I, think, I think he bought it. I, but no, it belongs to him. And so if I am focused on that thing and I think about how much I want it and I'm, I'm obsessed over it and I keep thinking, man, if only it were mine and not his, that's envy. It's something that's not mine that I wish were mine and I have negative emotions towards the person whose it is because I wish it was mine and not theirs. That's envy. Jealousy is different. Uh, partway through college, my dad allowed me to start using uh, a car that at, later on he, he gave to me, and I'm, praise the Lord, still driving. Um, it's a, it's a, a beautiful 2005 Hyundai Elantra, um, at this point, it's got more than 230,000 miles on it, but it is still moving along, and it's been a blessing. It's got a little dent on the, on the passenger side, um, but it, it's, it is a blessing. But back then, it was even more significant than that. I, I don't want you to think that my dad gave me this, this old car that wasn't worth anything, all right? But he allowed me to use it, but there were a few caveats at first. Um, I... One of them was, I was the one who drove the car, and that was it, all right? You're the person who drives the car. If somebody else asks you to borrow the car, somebody else asks to drive, the answer is no. And to be honest with you, I was kind of happy about that because it gave me an excuse when guys asked to borrow the car. First of all, it's stick, but then even if they could drive stick, sorry, my dad said I, 
I'm the only one who's allowed to drive it. But uh, he was concerned about specifically how that vehicle was going to be used. Why? Because it belonged to him. And he didn't want some irresponsible college student that he didn't know taking it out there and, and wrecking it. All right? Because it's his vehicle. Was it fair for him to be concerned and to have rules about the way that it was used? Absolutely. No question about it. Why? Because it belongs to him. He was, I could say, jealous over that vehicle. If I had called him and said, hey, Dad, I ignored what you said. I let one of my buddies take the car out, and he totaled it. I, I wouldn't have liked to have that conversation. <laughs> because he would have rightly been upset about that. It's something that belonged to him, and he can have expectations about it because it belongs to him. And for him to have himself emotionally set on that thing and concerned about it in a specific way is fair and right and good. That's jealousy. Now, jealousy can be sinful, okay? It can be selfish. It can go the wrong direction. Jealousy can lead to sin. But jealousy can be legitimate and good and godly. There's a, uh, a saying that you see floating around out there. If you love something, let it go. I, to be fair, I think I know what they're trying to say. But in one sense, there is no phrase that is further from the truth. Think of it this way. A, a husband and wife. And one of them begins to realize that their spouse's becoming distant, separating emotionally. Perhaps there are concerns about things that they're doing. That, you know, serious, serious issues here. Well, I love them. I'm just going to let them go. Absolutely not. If you truly love something, you won't just let it go. You're going to make sure that you're careful about what's happening to that person, to that thing. Because it's someone, it's, it's someone that you love. And, and legitimately, in this case, there's some jealousy there. Not just for selfish reasons, but because godly jealousy stems from a concern for what happens to that person. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes... I am jealousy, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin, virgin to Christ. He's writing to this church and he's got some hard things to say to them in this letter. There's some commendations, but there's some issues he's trying to face. And as he's writing to them, he's saying, look, I want you to, to bear with me in my folly, recognize be patient with me, because I'm concerned about you. I am jealous over you, with a godly jealousy. Not, I'm Paul, I started this church, 
or I had this influence on this church, and I don't want somebody else getting in there and messing it up. No, Paul says, I want to be able to present you to Christ spotless as his bride. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I don't just want to let things go in that church. I'm concerned about what happens there. I'm concerned about your behavior, your doctrine. I'm concerned about those things because I care about your relationship with God. I care about what happens to you. I want to be able to present you to Christ in the right way, in a good way. So godly jealousy. And there is godly jealousy in the love that Christ shows for his church in Revelations 2 and 3. In what way? Just briefly, we'll look at the, some ways that we see in these specific churches. Well, he's jealous about their devotion. He cares who they love. We see that in Revela- as he writes to the, uh, I'm sorry, the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, I'm just going to look at one verse. We're not going to look at the whole part that he talks to the church at Ephesus. He commends them for much of what they're doing. This church was busy. They're doing a lot. He commends them for their doctrine for good behavior, for a good testimony. But then he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Christ is jealous over this church. For what reason? Christ wants their love. It matters to him whether his bride loves him. True love wants to be reciprocated. You can think of a husband asking his wife, do you love me? And she says, well, that's not really important, is it? You know, I, I do everything I'm asked to do. Um, I, I'm consistent with taking care of the kids. I cook good meals for you. I do my fair share of the chores. I do everything that's expected of me. It doesn't really matter if I love you, does it? But that's kind of the attitude we see here with this church at Ephesus. We're working hard. We're doing the work of the Lord. We're keeping our doctrine straight. We're keeping a good testimony. We're doing a lot. Lots of us could look at this church at Ephesus and say, congratulations. Man, we can learn some lessons from this church. They're working harder than we are. But Christ says, there's a problem. Do you love me? He's jealous over them because he cares who they love. He's also jealous, as we look at these chapters, about doctrine. He cares about what they believe. Revelation 2.14, he's speaking to the church at Pergamos now. And he says, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. This church had doctrinal problems. He says, you've got this false doctrine in the church. That's a problem. I have a problem with that. They got some things right in this church, but they had serious problems with their belief system. And why did that matter? Well, what we believe determines what we worship. 
And also, what we believe determines how we behave. And we see that in this verse. We'll see that even more in just a minute. Does it matter what you believe about someone? Does that make a difference in the relationship? These churches were off in what they were thinking about Christ and what they were thinking about God's word. And you might think, well, God would just say, you know, they still love me. They might have some things wrong. They might not be quite on base, but they still love me. They're still trying to serve me. But he says, no, 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 this is a problem. You've got false doctrine. That's an issue that needs to be resolved. In a close relationship, if there's misunderstanding and someone believes something that's not true about another person, that needs to be cleared up for that relationship to be what it ought to be. And the same is true with our relationship with the Lord. We can't look at Christ the wrong way and look at salvation the wrong way and still say, well, I love the Lord and, my, and everything's fine. There's room for differences on some minor issues. But doctrine matters. What we believe matters. And Christ was jealous over these churches saying, you don't believe right, and that's a problem. That's not okay with me. He was also jealous about their lifestyle. He cared about how they lived. Speaking to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. We saw some of these same things, with the church at Pergamos. In both of these cases, again, they believed wrong, and because they were accepting false doctrine, they, were, they ended up behaving the wrong way. They ended up getting into sin because they were believing wrong. And again, that shows us how significant it is what our doctrine is. But he cared about how they were behaving, the way they were living. This church was listening to some of that false doctrine. They've been liberated by false teaching, and they're engaging in fornication. They're eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, we're not going to get into the details of, of that and, and all the nuances of that argument, but the basic idea, what he's saying here is they've accepted doctrine that says, you know what? It doesn't matter. We'll just live the way we want to. We'll indulge our desires. We don't have to worry about all those things that... that they used to worry about, all right? We have a better understanding. We know now, live like you want to, and just rejoice in Christ and love him and everything will be fine. Well, no, everything's not fine. He says, this is not okay. I have a problem with this. I care about the way that you live. And again, it's easy for us to draw a parallel with a relationship between a husband and wife. Say, well, as long as things seem okay between us, I don't really care what they do with the rest of their time. You know, they might, they might have an addiction going on over here. But that doesn't matter, as long as our relationship seems okay. They might be getting into habits that don't seem helpful, that seem hurtful to them. They might be getting into things that are sinful. But as long as our relationship seems okay, everything's fine. I don't really care about the way they act other than that. Well, of course, that would be ridiculous. Christ is jealous over them about the way they act. 
it's not okay to just believe the right way. It's not okay just to say, I love the Lord. He cares about the way you live. And then finally, he's jealous about their priorities. He cares about what they value. And we see that in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea here, and he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What's the problem here? It's a problem of perspective. It's a problem of what they're valuing. It's a problem of what they're looking at. This church was valuing earthly things. And that's what they measured their value off of. They said, we've got money, we're rich. We've got stuff, we're increased with goods. We don't need anything. We're prosperous. We're much better off than, say, the church at Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia. We are prosperous we are full, we are rich. And Christ says, maybe the way you're looking at it, that's true, but that's because of what you're valuing. If you valued what I value, you'd realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you have everything, you have nothing. It's one of the interesting juxtapositions here. You look at Smyrna, and it says, he basically tells them, you think you have nothing, but you're rich. And then you look at Laodicea, and he says, you think you're rich, but you have nothing. And it reminds us that the world's perspective is not accurate. But here, this church is valuing the things of earth. They're valuing things that are so much less valuable than the things that Christ wants them to value. He says, I want you to look at spiritual things. I want you to value your relationship with me. I want you to value the things that are important to me. And instead you say, well, I've got plenty of money. I'm good. He cares about what they value. He cares about their priorities. And he's jealous it matters to him what matters to them. So, we see this godly jealousy. This jealousy that springs out of love. And he looks at these churches and he writes them some harsh and difficult things to read because he loves them. Again, this is the bridegroom to his bride. And the loving thing to do here is for him to tell them the truth. He says, something's wrong because you don't love me the way you ought to. Something's wrong because you don't believe the way you ought to. Something's wrong because you're not acting the way you ought to. Something is wrong because you're valuing the wrong things. And I am not okay with that 
And I'm not going to sit back and let that happen because I love you. There is a tenderness to his love. There is a commitment to his love, but there's also a jealousy to his love. And so it, it begs the question tonight, if Jesus Christ wrote you a letter, what would it say? And it always makes me think as I read through these chapters. Would some of these same words be directed to me? In each of these letters, he identifies something about himself. He reminds them about something, something about his character. And then in most, he goes on to commend them about some things. And then after that, in most of them, he goes on to chide them for some things. And then he expresses the blessings that come to those who overcome. And he bids them, the words that are repeated every time, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. But there's a, there's a phrase that's repeated several times in these two books. I know thy works. There's no covering up. There's no hiding anything. He sees it all. He knows it all. He understands. He knows what in your life is worthy of commendation, which could only be worthy of commendation because it's come from him. He knows what in your life needs to be confronted. There is comfort and joy in his love, but there's also a challenge because Christ's love is a jealous love. He cares about whether you love him. He cares about what you believe. He cares about how you live. He cares about what you value. He loves you with an affectionate, committed, jealous love. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.